Copper Shores Bridges is excited to announce the next session of Getting Ahead begins soon. Getting Ahead is intended to teach people how to increase their income, decrease debt, become more self-sufficient, decrease social services assistance, and increase awareness of dental, vision, medical, and financial services available in the Copper Country. Investigators of Getting Ahead will get to meet with guest speakers, get paid to learn, plan for a better future, and meet new people. This 16-week life-changing program is absolutely free. If you know someone who is ready for more stability in their life, visit coppershores.org slash bridges to learn more and apply. Good Sunday morning and welcome again to Copper Country Today. I'm Todd Van Dyke. Our program is brought to you by the Copper Shores Community Health Foundation. You can learn more about them at uh, coppershores.org. One of the most disturbing stories that has developed in the United States over the past several years is the history that we are uncovering about abuse at what are sometimes termed Indian orphanages and sometimes termed... uh, in other terms, but basically they are places, boarding schools and such, they are places where young Native Americans many years ago were taken ostensibly so that care could be provided for them. And in fact, there were some ulterior motives behind it and some ugly things are coming out. And I'm joined by a gentleman whom I've known for many years. He was one of the first people I met when I moved to the Copper Country and was working at Eagle Radio in Berriga, and he's still on the staff there. Mitch Bolo, thank you for joining me on the program. Hey, Todd, thank you very much for having me. And, you know, it is a, it's a heavy topic, but I have to say before we get to the deep stuff that I'm happy to speak with you here today. Well, I'm good. To, it's good to talk with you again and to have you on the program. And uh, I'm glad to see research being done on this topic here locally. The, the first things that caught my attention to this were a couple of years ago, there were stories that came out about the kind of national implications about this, these boarding schools and these orphanages that were set up around the country country, and some real horror stories uh, started coming out there. They're finding bodies of little children buried at these places. Tell me what you know about the national scope of this. Well, that report was something that was a long time coming, and that comes from uh, the work of Deb Holland. She was voted in as the United States Secretary of the Interior, and she's the first Native woman to be in that position. And that's one of the first things that she did was start digging into the boarding schools because you know, it's coming to the attention of the world now, but natives, Native people have known about this for a long time. I mean, it's been just said over and over that, the uh, you know, th- this system has killed many of our people. And, you know, like, like you sort of mentioned that was ulterior motives, but, you know, it really was assimilation was the main goal. Um, that's what, uh, on our display that we're going to be setting up for this project, one of the quotes that we go by, or not go by, but we kind of frame is a quote from uh, Lieutenant Richard Pratt, I believe his name is, and is a quote from him is "Kill the Indian, save the man." So that that's kind of what that's what I know starting out right off the bat. It, that was the main goal: assimilation. One of the things that I have learned, and I'm glad to have learned since I moved here and became familiar with the KBIC and made friends in the tribe and such, I'm. It was taught to me generically as I was growing up that we were not very nice to Native Americans. We kind of reneged on promises. We had some problems. There was always this little undercurrent in it that, you know, it wouldn't have been so bad if they hadn't resisted so much. You know, like it was the Native Americans' fault (laughs) that we trod all over them and killed so many of them and wrecked their society. Um, I'm glad to see this history coming to light because it does need to be rewritten and rewritten accurately. We Native Americans were brutally treated. 
Yeah, I mean, it's rough because going through my education at Northern Michigan University and some of my teachers there, they brought me step through step through the different eras of history. And they didn't, you know, gene- like you said, it's it's always been generic for me too, but taking a deeper look at what's actually happened, it's been really rough throughout history. And it's such an open wound. It's easier to see how it's an open wound today. Um, one thing I can say, though, throughout history, there there have been a lot of allies that have helped the native people and that's been that's been really key and that's something that's been really great in this project too we've been working uh with bishop rayford ray from marquette from the episcopalian diocese of marquette and you know those allyships that's really where the change happens is like when people come together the boarding schools the uh, orphanages um, what was the time frame the historical time frame in which these operated All right. So that's one of the parts like, so this first phase of what we've been doing with this project is collecting these interviews to do, get an official apology from Bishop Rayford, Ray Marquette. um, And throughout collecting these interviews, we're also starting to study more into what's going on, uh, when the timeframes have been. Um, And it's, it's really hard because a lot of this stuff isn't accurately written down, but so far what we've seen, um, the report shows that between 1819 and 1969, the United States operated and supported 408 boarding schools across 37 different states. And that's that's kind of the official number that we have right now. As late as 1969, really? Yes. And that's what these interviews, like, that's one of the big things that people are going to learn is that these lasted very late and these people are still walking amongst us and it's like... Man, that's one of the things that was a shocker to me, too. Like, are we really going to be able to get all these interviews? But it's, you know, we're looking to get much more. Yeah, and, and you know, you go back to the 19th century, and there was a crying need for orphanages in all levels of society. We were talking on a program recently about how many people died early in those eras. Uh, you know, you go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century here in the copper country, we lost a worker a day in the, in the uh, copper mine, uh, a worker a week in the copper mines. Women frequently died in childbirth. There were a lot of orphans. There was the need for places to put them. So on its face, this sounds like something that was needed for those purposes. But tell me what the real reason was for gathering these children, taking them in many cases away from family members who could have taken care of them what was the ulterior motive yeah no doubt history was really rough a lot of people had it really rough but the big thing is the assimilation um these these native kids would come be taken from their families and they wouldn't even speak i mean you know earlier in history these kids wouldn't speak english um they wouldn't dress in the american style so they their clothes would be taken their hair would be cut and they'd be given american names um, a lot of those, I mean, my name is Mitchell, and I believe that name stems from Michael, which was a biblical, a, you know, a biblical name, which was probably chosen, just chosen from a random name. Um, assimilation to, like Pratt really said, it, he, they tried to kill the Indian, but save the man. They wanted to make Americans. Yeah, they basically wanted to wipe out any vestige of the Native American mindset and turn it into a completely white Northern European mindset. Yeah, I mean, some of the things we've learned throughout history, like, and this is throughout, you know, the whole continent. Like, I've heard about kids being marched straight into, like, their, you know, medical offices and put under x-ray machines so that they'd be sterilized right off the bat. 
Um, we've had accounts of like, you know, mothers going into the dentist to get root canals and then they'd be put under and they'd wake up sterilized. Um, those are on the national, you know, throughout the continent, stories from just around here. Um, in my interviews, we've uncovered children taken to the orphanage that have parents right up the road. Um, other kids, they weren't taken, but this family, they suspect very much because uh, they were cult They held the culture. They had language speakers, and so their kids were taken to the orphanage, and they oh, were rarely allowed to visit. Why do we suppose, I mean, in, in what I hope is a kinder, gentler, more understanding society, why do we suppose that the Europeans who came to this continent were so intimidated by the Native American culture? You know, and that really is the big question. Um, I've, I've, through my education, I've been learning about different societies and how they operate and how they act and colonization and, you know, artificial constructs. And it, it, that's the big question. That's, that's for the smart people to figure out and how we can, you know, kind of undo the wrong things that have happened throughout history. Because, of course, you know, the world is, like I said earlier, every, everybody coming together is, is the key to everything. But that can happen without assimilation. Well, yeah, and you know, we don't need to beat people into submission, which was so frequently done with Native Americans. It was just a, a terrible, terrible section in our society, a terrible slice of our history that brings this about. Um, there was a Native American orphanage in Assinans. As you mentioned, there was one here in the area. How did that get started? Was that out of the uh, Catholic outreach, or was that somehow uh, otherwise independent? You know, and that's kind of the stuff we're starting to learn about now. Phase one, like I said, was kind of collecting the interviews and getting the apology out and starting this whole project of digging into everything. Um, so we have the St. Joseph's Boarding and Day School at Assinans, which was a little bit later in the history, if I do believe, but then Bishop Berga had started one there earlier in the 1800s. Um, and then also we're discovering that on the other side of the bay, you're familiar, we have the, the Zeba side over in the Zeba church. We're discovering sure. that there was a whole other story on this side. Really, so when it comes to some of those... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the crumbling remains of the old orphanage building there at Assinans, but I did not realize that there was something that happened on the other side of the bay. That would be at the, there was a small church, um, uh, St. Uh, Tecacwitha there, uh, that was operating there for a while. I didn't realize there was something counterpart to it in Zeba. Yeah, and then I, I don't even know if there was a counterpart. This place, uh, you know, and I don't know this for sure because we're just starting to learn, but it almost seems like this area in Berga was like an area of gathering of a lot of organizations. Like, for instance, that old tribal center that got torn down when that was originally built, it was a friary, I believe, which that's that's where they train nuns and stuff, I think. Um, and if you think about some of the names of this area, some of the big fur trading names, um, a lot of those names still exist around here when a lot of the native names disappeared. Um, and then the name Berga itself, the name, like even over in Marquette, these names are big names of the region. So we're almost like seeing, and we don't know this for sure, but I'm starting to suspect myself here that this was like an area of every, this was the epicenter almost. But I don't know that for sure. It's hard to say it. Yep, a lot of this has been buried. Uh, a lot of it was never recorded. I mean, a lot of people I suspect at the time never realized that in the year 2024, we'd be looking back trying to parse out what they're doing. 
and they didn't keep real accurate records about it. I'm talking with Mitch Bolo from the Keweenaw Bay Indian community. He is involved in a project to uncover what happened in the uh, Native American Indian orphanages and uh, boarding schools, including the one that we are aware of that existed in the Asinans area. You've talked to how many people about this now? Uh, and, and these were people who either were involved directly or maybe had family members who were involved? All right. So over this project so far, we've done, I've done 10 interviews. Um, we did seven with boarding school survivors. I did one with a retired professor from NMU. She taught a Native American boarding school history education class. Um, the other was a tribal member from Hannaville. His name is Earl Meshigan. He's like a cultural leader and he's a descendant of a survivor from the school. And then the 10th interview was the apology and an interview with Bishop Rayford Ray. Talk so to we me did ab- seven survivors. Talk to me about what the survivors told you. What were their experiences when they were young and in these institutions? All right. So, you know, it was, first of all, I mean, it was kind of interesting to question these people because like, well, you know, doing radio interviews and we're trying to cut to the meat and promote what's going on and stuff. But these people were like, they're, I mean, they're trauma survivors. So I didn't really, I couldn't really cut to the chase. So I, I did sort of question them on, you know, what happened. And they share different stories that you can kind of see in the interviews. But, you know, one of the, I guess, basic questions that I would ask is like, did the, did the adults care about your future? And, you know, the big resound, it was a big resounding no from all of them. So it was a lot of kids that were just very alone but also with other people that are like them, but then they had adults that take care of them that really care about their futures, from what it sounds like. Could you get a sense as to whether these people were in their youth truly alone, or were they people who had perhaps other family members or friends who would have taken them in had they been given the chance? Well, that story, that one's across the board different almost every time around. The conditions of how people ended up at these schools. Like I said, in our, in our area, we had one where their parents are right up the road, but they're sent to an orphanage. Um, it, there's a lot of different ways that they're bringing these kids. I mean, sometimes it would just be basically the, the police would show up and say, hey, you got to send them in or you're going to go in. And they'd take them all in a van or whatever, or whatever kind of vehicle was at the whatever time period we're talking about. Were they allowed to see their parents? Were they allowed to see their relatives? Uh, did they get visits at these sites, did they say? Depending on what school you're at, what time of year it was, sometimes they'd be allowed to visit and there'd be some contact. Um, some mail would go back and forth, but that would be, you know, very much looked through and you couldn't, it wasn't true communication through the mail because they'd look at it. Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes though there would be, sometimes these kids wouldn't, across the continent, there are many cases where the, the parents would lose the kids to the schools and then after the school year is up, their kid would just be gone. And they're like, hey, where's my kid? And they're like, oh, school is over. They're not here or whatever. Um, Sometimes these kids would be adopted out to non-Native families. Wow. Uh, (laughs) This just flabbergasts me. Uh, I'm familiar with the Asinan School. You mentioned the potential of uh, something similar in Zeba. Where else in the Upper Peninsula was this happening? Okay. So we have the Asinan site, which is over on the west or the western central side, over on the eastern side of the U.P., we had the Ochippewa Boarding School in Schoolcraft County. We have not very much information about that one. That's We, we are really interested in figuring out more about th- those schools. And then um, there's the Mission 
Point Indian School, which is on Mackinac Island, which, you know, that's right between the two peninsulas. There. Sure, sure. And were there others in like the northern part of the lower peninsula? Are we aware of any uh, in those areas as well? Uh, yeah, and these are the ones that are listed according to the official report from Deb Holland. There are definitely more schools, more orphanages out there that we have yet to uncover. But the ones that we're talking here are the ones that were listed in that official report. Um, in Harbor Springs, there's the Holy Childhood Boarding School, which is one that overfill. Because like, that's one of the reasons I think this is an epicenter here in Berga, because so many kids got sent to our area, they would then get sent down to uh, Harbor Springs. Um, and then there's also one in Mount Pleasant. That's the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School. I was actually just in that area, and I, I rode around those buildings there. And I can tell you, the the first thing it reminded me of, if I, even if I didn't know the what buildings those were, it reminded me of exactly like a concentration camp. That's exactly what it looked like. It's still there, because I lived yeah, in Mount yep. I lived in Mount Pleasant in that area for about five years. I knew nothing of this. Nobody said anything. Yeah. Um. I, I'm not too familiar with the area, so I can't explain where it's at, but it's in kind of a semi-wooded area, and it's kind of fenced off with no trespassing signs. But wow. I mean, there's got to be like six, seven, eight different buildings there, and they're pretty sizable buildings. And amazing that uh, this was going on. I, I I knew nothing about it, and I'm sure that many people in that area also knew nothing about it. Um, so as you talked with these people, what kind of feeling did you get from them as to what the long-term effects were? Uh, obviously, going through this type of childhood trauma, uh, it's got to have an after effect. Well, there's two different, well, right off the bat, one thing I remember asking one of them was, what's something that you learned from your time at the school? And their reply was, I learned a hit by getting hit. So, I mean, that's, that's, shows a lot just in that one sentence yeah that's not but a real then, positive thing <laughs> no not at all i mean it's just straight to the point but then also going back to the way i question these survivors um it, we took a, we developed a list of questions using a, a actual trauma questions i think through like ucla um and these questions you really do kind of they're more it's more like an evaluation instead of an interview. Okay. And you do, you get the sense through watching all of the interviews together through that evaluation style, you can see, you can see the effect. You can feel the effect through their answers. You can see how their life went up and down from this. So, I mean, it just, it's just right there to see. It's hard for me to explain it, I guess, but it affected everything about who they are. And probably has a lingering effect then to the next generation and perhaps even to the generation beyond. Absolutely. That person that said that they learn the hit by getting hit. They, uh, you know, I asked them about their families later on, and they went on to say that there was a moment they almost struck their children, and they, <clears throat> they remembered that time, and they were able to stop themselves. So what age group was involved in this? Did, were, were kids taken as infants? Uh, how long were they held? At what point might they have been released? We can't, I can't really give complete or, you know, real clear numbers here in the UP, but, you know, across the continent, we know that kids as young as three were being taken from their parents. Because kids who are three years old are such a threat to the American way of life, you know? <laughs> yep. Uh. But I mean, really, if, if you're, I mean, thinking from the point of view of like making Americans, that is the perfect age because that, that three-year-old, they are soaking in so much information about who they're going to be. 
Well, that's a great point. You have been working along with the other people on this project at putting together a traveling display that is showing what you have accomplished with this project so far. Tell me about the display. All right. So this display is what we're going to be using to bring awareness to the whole issue, um, the interviews, the survivors, the apology from Rayford. Uh, We're looking to bring it to places such as tribal college campuses, um, to local powwows, um, to different, um, even like almost, mm, uh, how do I say it, like museum venues, like at NMU, they have their display place there. Um, But we're also looking to bring it to different churches and whatnot. Um, This is to bring awareness to what has happened and to also, um, you know, if we bring it to a powwow, we're hoping to find more survivors to collect more stories. Because that, to me, as a tribal person, I've been raised to always hearing that our way was the oral tradition. And to me, using cameras and video and all this, that's how we kind of do it in today's world. Yeah, we need to continue the oral tradition. We need to convert that oral tradition into something a little more permanent. Absolutely. So the display is to get as just what it's for, to get as many eyes on it as possible to create awareness. Now, we're broadcasting this on Sunday morning. You're going to have that display up in Barriga County in a couple of locations over the next few days? Yep, we are looking to have it at the KBOCC Lons campus. It's going to be there for the week, Monday through Friday. And we're looking to have it right in the main entrance, which is we're so grateful to the KBOCC for letting us set up there because it, and it's such a beautiful campus and it's such a prime spot to put the display for people to walk in and see it, get as many eyes on it as we can. Uh, after the week, we're going to be setting up at the Niwanakea Center over on the other side of the bay in Baraga, which is where the 18th annual KBIC um, winter powwow will be taking place. So it'll be there for people to view as well. And people are welcome to stop in at the KBOCC campus uh, during the week to take a look at it and also uh, attend the powwow. But uh, I try to emphasize this to people that powwows are not just for Native Americans. They're open to everybody. Absolutely. I'm telling you what. I mean, like I said, we're talking about a deep issue here and stuff. But the powwow, that's a happy good celebration. If you're looking for a good time, go check out the powwow. I learned that from my friend, Eric Owanape. He said, you're a member of the Dutch tribe. You're welcome too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I miss that guy. Yeah, I, I do too. Um, how has this affected you? Man, you know what? I, I'm glad that you asked that because that's something I was thinking about earlier because I was like, man, I hope I don't get emotional during this interview, which I cracked up a little bit there. I don't know if you noticed, but it has been tough. It's been tough. Um, well, I can luckily, imagine. my girlfriend, yeah, uh, luckily, my girlfriend's a social worker, and you know, I, I talk it out with her quite a bit. She listens very well, and she social works me a bit and helps me deal with it because it's been tough because, and I mean, not to share the trauma, but this is the one the the one of the things from the interviews that really gets me um, is that they talk about they've talked about where late, late at night when the kids are sleeping in their beds, you know, they're separated boys, different girls. Uh, you know, it, it was only a matter of time before one kid would start to cry and then another kid would start to cry, another kid would start to cry, and then pretty soon they'd all be wailing. And then then that sometimes they get beat from all the wailing because they couldn't quit. Oh boy. Um yeah, I mean so I mean I'm not trying to share the trauma, but I cannot I can't stop hearing that wailing. I mean it's just I have four four kids of my own, and that's just so heavy for me. I, I can't under I can't even comprehend. And the Episcopal Church, the diocese, has gotten involved in this. What brought them into it? 
Well, I was contacted by another tribal member. Um, her name is Leora Tatterson. She is a Bay Mills tribal member, and she reached out to me about this project. I, I really don't know how it all really started. They started working on this project before I was involved, and then they brought me on board. Um, all I can say is that from a Native perspective, working with the church has been, it was difficult at first because there's always been that mistrust. And so there was a few meetings and like the people that I've been working with, Bishop uh, Ray, um, and then some of the other team members, just it's just been super incredible. It's that, that allyship that I talked about, like coming together. So you have the opportunity then to see this display at the KBOCC campus in Launce over the next few days, and then this weekend at the Winter Powell coming up at the Neo and Ikea Center. Mitch, let's keep in touch because as you learn more about this as this goes on, could we do some updates? Absolutely. And actually, I have to throw in one more thing there for that last question, because I, I do sort of know the origins of this. And I have to say it is because Bishop Rayford Ray wanted to know more about this topic, this issue. And he wanted to um, he didn't want to just issue an apology without, you know, learning more. So that's actually how this started, too. Um, we'll, we'll, so, we'll, like, uh, we'll, we'll give him good credit as we close out this segment of the program. And Mitch Bolo, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work on this. And uh, we do want to know how this uh, how this continues. Thank you for reaching out and having me.